You can turn your Bibles, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 6 to 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 6 to 13. Paul, we'll see in these verses, has been rejected by the church in Corinth that he founded and spent nearly two years pastoring because he is an embarrassment. He uh, doesn't have a good reputation. He's a fool for Christ. He's weak. He's held in disrepute. He's hungry. He's poorly dressed. He's homeless. He has to work with his own hands. He's reviled. He's persecuted. He's slandered. He's like scum. And so they don't uh, want to associate with people like Paul, so they've rejected him. Uh, Now, of course, Paul is uh, in bad repute with those that he should be. He, he is suffering as he should. His suffering is a commendation of his ministry, not a criticism. And the church in Corinth is wrong. <clears throat> and so his, good rep, his bad re- reputation is for a good reason, if you could say it like that. And so the question we're going to ask you this morning is, how about you? Are you willing to have a bad reputation for Christ? Are you willing to be held in disrepute, even by other Christians, because of your testimony for Christ? Let's read, and then we'll pray. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. Without us you've become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. We labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would teach us now to love your word, that we would delight in it, that we would walk in it. God, that we would be blessed because we keep your testimony and seek you with all your heart, with all of our hearts. That you have commanded us, your precepts, to be kept diligently. And, oh God, that our ways would be steadfast in keeping them. And so, God, please help us now. In Jesus' name, amen. So, Paul, as you know, in the first four chapters, we're, kind of co- we're coming to the close here of the first section. The first section mainly deals with Paul's defense of his ministry because the Corinthians have rejected him because of what we've just read here. And then he's critiquing them. He's 
rebuking them for their arrogance, for their pride. And Paul here takes the gloves off. He has been hard up to this point, and yet we really haven't seen anything yet. Paul even begins to make fun, mock them for their foolishness. And in the midst of it all, Paul reminds, reminds us of the dangers of being the wrong kind of respectable. In verses 6 through 8, Paul uh, rebukes them for their pride. He says plainly that they're puffed up in verse 6 against one another. He asks three biting questions in verse 7, and then he satirically taunts them in verse 8. Verses 19 to 13, Paul shows them by contrast that his suffering is for Christ and their own self-evaluation of greatness is absolutely misplaced. Paul is being treated as garbage while they see themselves as great, but he is doing what is right by suffering for Christ, and so they are wrong by rejecting him who is suffering for Christ. So Paul writes in verse 6 that he has applied all these things, that these things refers to everything that Paul has said previous about him and Apollos. If you look at chapter 3. Paul makes it very plain that he and Apollos are nothing before God. It's only God who gives the growth. They're just servants. Paul makes it plain in chapter 4 that they are just servants and stewards. And Paul is applying those things to himself and to Apollos. So Paul is doing what Christians are supposed to do. He's looking at the plank in his own eye before any specks in theirs. But he is doing this for their benefit. Whatever Paul is doing is designed for their benefit. This gets to the heart of what pastoral ministry is is supposed to be. As I've said in the previous weeks, Paul, especially in chapters 3 and chapter 4, is giving us a very helpful biblical background on what pastoral ministry is. And here in those three words, for your benefit, we get the heart of pastoral ministry. Ministers are supposed to do what they do all for the benefit of the church. Our calling is for your sake. This is because we are servants of Christ. Now, This doesn't mean just because someone is a pastor that that's what he is actually doing. As you know, uh, some pastors are tempted to do what they do all for their own sake. We can Now, when we do that, what we typically do is we typically get soft. Sometimes pastors can do what they want for their own sake by becoming very um, authoritarian, maybe. They abuse their power, they manipulate and coerce, but more often pastors withhold preaching what they should, withhold telling the truth to people in the church that need to hear it uh, because they want to protect themselves. But Paul won't do that. Paul is speaking plainly to the Corinthian church and he's doing it for their benefit. Now, you can apply this to yourself. This is when Paul says, For your own benefit, this is just simply an extension of the second great commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. This isn't just for pastors. This is for us all. You can apply that husband to your husbanding, right? Wife to your wifing. Uh, Whatever job God has given you, you should apply that to your workplace. Friends, you should apply that to each other. Uh, Let's do it to gossip. What would it look like when you're in a circle of friends here at church and somebody begins talking about somebody for no good reason who isn't present? What would it look like their church member 
to do something for their benefit? What would it look like? So Paul is doing what he's doing for their benefit so that they might not, so that they might learn not to go beyond what is written so that they might not become puffed up. So get that connection there. Paul is speaking plain truth, rebuking them, providing them a, an accurate biblical picture of the passage like for their benefit so that they might not learn to go beyond what is written in Scripture so that they might not become puffed up. You see a great connection between pride and how one interacts with God's Word. He's giving you a biblical definition of pride as a believer. Arrogance as a believer is to go beyond what God has given you. In Deuteronomy 29, 29, Moses writes that what God has given to us in his written word is ours and our children's forever. But the secret things of the Lord belong to the Lord. And sometimes we as Christians become discontent with what God has given. It's not enough. We need more. And we go beyond. And Paul is calling that the very definition of pride. And Paul wants them to learn to not go beyond what is written. Now this tells us uh, something about the doctrine of Scripture. If we don't need to go beyond what is written, that means what is written is sufficient. The great error... In Christian, like our kind of Christian, all, all of us, I, I believe, believe deep in our hearts that God's Word is inspired. Every word of it is from God. It is without error. You believe that? I know you do. This is an errorless word. But in your, fun, in your daily life, do you actually have a functional belief that the doctrine of inspiration and inerrancy leads you to actually believe that God's Word is sufficient. Is it enough for your parenting? Is it enough to know how to handle the finances God has given you? Is it enough to know how to think about men when a beautiful woman walks by? Is God's Word sufficient? Is it enough? Is it enough for you? For the... Christians in Corinth, it wasn't. They wanted more secret knowledge. They wanted higher insight, deeper knowledge. But God's Word is absolutely sufficient. So is it for you? Like, let, let's just apply that to when trouble comes your way, when you're having a bad day. The simple thing to do in Scripture when you're having a rough day is to pray and ask God to help. Is that simple exhortation to us as believers, is that, is that enough for you? Is that sufficient for you? And parents, you are called to raise your children to discipline and instruction of the Lord. Your, your children are supposed to be disciplined, and they're supposed to be instructed in the Lord. Do, do you need more than that? Is that enough for you? Where do you turn when you feel like you don't have enough? Do you turn to God's Word? To not do so is the very essence of arrogance. That they might learn by us not to go beyond what is written so that they might not be puffed up in favor against one another. So we see two things here. 
Pride is connected to whether or not you see Scripture sufficient. And then when Scripture isn't sufficient, you get puffed up. It always leads to relational mess. You see it here. They've gone beyond what is written, so they're puffed up in pride, and they're against one another. So wherever you see division, there's pride. Wherever you see pride, it's a lack of sufficiency of Scripture. Our behavior is always determined by our doctrine. If Scripture is not sufficient for you, You'll become arrogant, and when you become arrogant, you'll have all kinds of relational discord. And you'll look at the relational discord, and you'll go, what's wrong with them? Right? You do that, right? When you're out of favor with your spouse, you're going, what's wrong with her? What's wrong with him? And if you would be able to trace it back, you would see, right, it's, it's my pride, And it's because Scripture is not sufficient. And so Paul does what he does so that they might be humbled, see the sufficiency of Scripture, and quit fighting. Quit dividing. So Paul's getting to the root here. The root is pride, and behind the pride is a lack of submission to God's Word. It's rebellion against God, right? And we don't want to be that. That You can apply that to this idea of, um, or this move to the new church building. There is going to be all kinds of temptation for discord and disunity and even a little, like we're going to be putting in new carpeting. And, and you will know if there is fighting, that there is pride and behind the pride is we are just not depending on God's word. Now, Paul, in order to get right down dirty and into their mess, asked three questions in in chapter 7 and then actually satirically mocks them in verse 8. These questions and these statements in verse 8 are just dripping with satire. For who sees anything different in you? The question there is they think themselves superior. It's more of, What makes you so superior? What do you have that you did not receive? Remember, they're dividing up under different teachers. And so they're taking the knowledge they've gained as if they discovered it themselves. What do you have that you haven't been given? If you did receive it, why do you boast as if you did not? This is a fatal temptation for us as Christians. You're driving down the road listening to your favorite Christian preacher and you hear something and then you go home and boast about this new thing that you discovered, forgetting that somebody else had to teach it to you. And you can do this in everything in life. So, so the pride here is the pride of acting like you're something that you're not. As one commentator said, way too many of us were born on third base and take credit for hitting a triple. You can do something great and you take credit as if you're the greatness, you're the source, when you know that you're not the source, right? This gets to the doctrine of creation. Who made everything? Who made you? Let's get to the doctrine of God's providence. Who gives you everything that you have, even your abilities? 
In Ephesians 2, it says that God even ordained beforehand the good deeds that you would walk in. In in Philippians 2, it says that he even gives you the, the will to do the good deeds that he's given you the gifts to do. So all of the abilities, all of the materials, all of the will, all of the good that you do is just a gift of God's grace. And we become so prideful. Now one thing I'd like to apply this to is this notion of privilege in our world. When we were preaching through Ecclesiastes in chapter 6, you don't have to turn there, uh, we read in verse 2 that God gives wealth and possessions and honor. And here in 1 Corinthians, we see what do you have that you did not receive? God is the giver of all good things. He's the Father of lights, giving all of the good gifts that we have. And in our world right now, especially among the more liberal-minded, it is a guilty thing to be privileged. You talk about white privilege, you talk about the privilege of wealth, you talk about the privilege, the male privilege, well, it's actually called toxic masculinity, but it's... You're privileged because you are masculine. And that's seen as an evil thing. To have this privilege is evil. To have this privilege is to be guilty. And of course, you know that that's just a manipulative tool to get you to give money. Right? 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 You know that that's just a tool to get you to, to, to follow their rules. But... Here in Scripture, Christianity clearly teaches that privilege is a gift of God. Wealth is a gift of God. Now, as Christians, we should use our privilege for the good of others. We should use it to serve others. But it should never be coerced or demanded by the state to do so. And so don't yield to these things. See, what I'm saying is Scripture is sufficient, even on this thing. When you hear this stuff coming at you in the media, where do you go to make sense of it? Do you go to Scripture to make sense of these things? It makes so much sense to our fallen carnal nature to think, yes, I'm a man. I am privileged. I should should let the state determine uh, the the different sexes and roles and so on. And, And we would see in Scripture that's baloney. Now, what Paul does in verse 8 with this is he just makes fun of it. He actually mocks them. See all these exclamation points? Right? Paul's not making true, bold statements here. He's making fun of them here. because he's, he's pointing out what they believe about themselves, which is a lie. You, you already have all you want, because they think they, they've attained it all. He's making fun of them. Already you've become rich. They think themselves so wealthy and so high. So significant. Without us, you've become kings. And would that you did rule. They're lying to themselves. They're so high on themselves. And he's making fun of them. He's using the good gift of satire to help them see what they can't see, but should see. They're blind to their own arrogance. They're blind to their own self-anointed rule. And Paul uses this cutting satire to help them see their folly. Now, Christians, if Paul were doing this here with us, he would get tisked. 
nice Christians don't do that. And that's because we think we're better than the apostles. We're too nice as Christians to do this. Now, Paul is doing this to other Christians. There are plenty of Christians that you know need this kind of satirical cut, right? Right. There is a um, church in St. Louis hosting a conference for the LGBT+. It's a Presbyterian church in America. This isn't a liberal mainline denomination. This is a conservative, orthodox Christian who is hosting a conference. And a part of the conference is a speaker who's written a book that it's good for gay men to foster um, spiritual friendships with other men that are covenant unions without the sex. Right? So these men who have identified as gay Christian should live with other men and go on vacations with other men and act like they're married to these men without actually having intercourse with these men. That needs to be made fun of because it's a joke. It's foolish. It's wickedness, actually. These are Christians that we would agree with on almost everything. These are speakers that you would listen to their sermons. That kind of thing in our day just needs to be made fun of. It needs to be mocked as Paul is mocking this. So we need to learn to follow the apostles' example and not be so... Uh, more Christian than Paul to not go beyond what or below. So Paul is cutting them here. Why? For their benefit. That always has to be the heart behind it, right? Because he loves them. Now, Paul, of course, isn't at all as great as them. He's weak, verses 9 to 13. So the Corinthians have fallen for the lie of health, wealth, and prosperity, if I can. They, they want glory from God without any of the suffering. They want resurrection without a cross. They want all of the adulation that Christ re- is receiving post-resurrection without going through all of the suffering pre-resurrection. Paul and his life is the example. So Paul goes through a list of, of what apostles suffer. They're like men sentenced to death. They're a spectacle. To the world. They're fools for Christ's sake, but you're so wise. They're weak, but, but you're so strong. They're held in honor. You're held in honor, but apostles in disrepute. You see what Paul's doing here? He's trying to bring them back to biblical, faithful Christianity. To this very hour. Paul says, we hunger and thirst, we're poorly dressed, we're buffeted and homeless, we labor, we work with our own hands. How disreputable. 
Because if he was any kind of good Christian speaker, he would never get his hands dirty. He'd have pastor hands. They're reviled, but they bless. They're persecuted, but they endure. They slandered, but they entreat. They have become and are still like scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Scum of the world, refuse of all things, has in mind this picture maybe a street sweeper after the winter as it cleans up all of the refuse and garbage and nastiness. That's what they're treated like. So Paul's an embarrassment. That's the issue here. Paul is an absolute embarrassment. He's not respectable. So the Corinthians haven't rejected Paul because he's done something wrong to them. They've rejected him because they're an, he's an embarrassment to them. He's an embarrassment to them. He's too simple. He's too poor. He stirs up too much truffle, trouble. He suffers too much. He doesn't dress nice enough. And so these high-brow high believers don't like to be around him. Now, one thing to do with this is to make the mistake that Paul is here teaching that it's Christian to seek this kind of suffering. Paul isn't here giving you a template for how every Christian should live because you're a Christian. We as Christians do not have a theology of suffering in that if you're going to be Christian, you need to make your life like this. Paul isn't giving you something to shoot for. He's giving you the result of faithfulness to Christ that does happen sometimes to Christ's service. And if you are going to live a distinctly Christian existence, this could be the result. When Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me, he meant that following him could make you have to bear a cross. If you hear Christian teaching that, that says you're supposed to actively seek this kind of existence, they're probably after your money. And so this isn't what you're supposed to try to become. This is what might happen if you're being a Christian. Another way to say this is Paul wasn't in danger of being the wrong kind of respectable. He was willing to suffer the disrepute and dishonor and reviling for Christ so long as it's because of the truth. Our world is okay with you being a Christian between your ears. The moment it leaks out of your mouth, you might suffer. So this week I read three different articles. A teacher in Indiana forced to resign because he cited his Christian faith for reason of not calling students by their preferred, no longer sex-bound, gender-based reality. So he was forced to resign. Uh, a, an exec with CrossFit, those of you who work out probably know what that is. I eat donuts. I didn't know what CrossFit was. Um, <laughs> So their chief marketing officer, it's, it's Gay Pride Month, if you didn't know that. Did you know that? It is. Um, 
He was fired because all of the CrossFit gyms do this gay workout thing. And he was fired because he supported one of the gyms that canceled their gay workout thing. And he tweeted something about that being wrong before God. And he was fired for it. In fact, his boss told him to shut the F up publicly. That's how Christians will be treated if, they, if their Christianity leaks out. Right? On the other hand, the United Methodist Church Minnesota Conference decided that it was wisdom to remove father, reference to father from the Apostles' Creed because they're embarrassed by masculinity. Right? So which one are you going to be? That's what the Corinthians are struggling with. They're going to suffer like the CrossFit executive, or are they going to couch like the UMC Minnesota? That's, what, that's what's going on here. Are you going to follow the Apostle Paul's example or the church in Corinth's example? That, that's the issue here. That's the issue here. See, in our age, this kind of thing in our day is more of a reality than ever, especially in this issue of God made them male and female. But, you might say, retirement's just two years away and I'll lose my pension. What is it going to be for you? What is it going to be for you? I have felt this temptation in moving into the new building. Pressure, right? Got a big building. Got to pay for it. Need more people. We give more money. Maybe I ought not to say that Wonder Woman is a feminist rubbish. <laughs> Maybe we ought to just be a little nicer for a little while. What are we going to do? Hey, what are we going to do when somebody wants to rent space from us and they're okay with teaching little boys that it's okay to wear dresses and to be more open-minded? What are we going to do? What are we going to do in our church when somebody with a lot of money is putting pressure on us to do something or they might leave? What are you going to do as a congregation? What are you going to do when you see a parent whose child is out of control and they definitely just need some discipline, but you're afraid to say something because it might cause some relational disharmony? See, it gets down to even that little thing, doesn't it? Are you going to be willing to suffer the disrepute for doing what Christ would have you or do what is right for your benefit? See, we often forget that the gospel is a gospel according to Hebrews 11 that Christ, who is the founder of our salvation, was made perfect through suffering and that he was glad to suffer and it says, wasn't ashamed to call us brothers. He wasn't ashamed to identify with us. Here's the thing. We have this completely on its head. We think we have the choice to choose whether or not to identify with Jesus in our world because Jesus is disreputable. And and you don't want to be identified too closely with him, but you still want all of the benefits. 
That's what you want. You don't want to identify too closely with him. You just want all the salvation. Do you forget that you are infinitely lower than Jesus Christ? That you rebelled in crazy sin before his father and that it was he who had to lower himself to associate with you. It's not the other ways around, brothers and sisters. You are not greater than him. He is infinitely greater than you. And he was not ashamed to take on human form, take your sin upon himself, and die a shameful, embarrassing death on your behalf and call you brother. Could he relate any more dearly to you? And he did. And so I pray you will not shrink back from calling him Lord. Let's pray. If I pray that we would do what is for the benefit of the others, biblically defined, that we would not think of ourselves more highly than we ought, but that we would be fools for your sake, that we would be weak and held in disrepute and hungry and poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless and reviled and persecuted and slandered so long as it's for your sake. And so, God, give us grace that we might live in this world uh, desiring to please you above all else because we are looking for the world to come. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Here's the charge. One of the things that's happening in this text is that they are, are being disloyal to Paul. They're betraying him. And so is there anyone in your life to whom you should have been loyal that you weren't? That you should have backed up, but you didn't? Could be a family member, could be another believer, could be a pastor, could be somebody at your workplace. I'd encourage you to make that right. I'd encourage you to go this week and give them a call and let them know that you were wrong and that you'd have their back going forward. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.